Welcome back to the 15th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be discussing some of the top stories, including what you should do when you feel burned out, a new tax plan that will help spur the growth of small businesses in America, and Liz Truss's new approach to the economy. And should I say new, more accurately, her approach that is much like Thatcher to the economy in Britain. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into the stories. Our first one comes from Inc. I was feeling completely burned out. And then a three-word setting on my iPhone changed everything. And no, if you're thinking the setting is do not disturb, you're, you're mistaken on this one. So there's actually a question before we get into the details of this article. Do you ever feel burned out? That's a term, a buzz term in my opinion, that has been passed around by everybody in this generation. I'm part of Gen Z. You see it a lot from millennials, even some Gen Xers. This idea of being burned out, of working too hard, putting in too many hours, not having enough time to relax and decompress. And I feel like it's extremely common with people in Gen Z because they feel this enormous amount of pressure, whether that's put on by their family uh, society or themselves to strive for very large goals and to really work themselves very, very hard. And if you follow any of the like social media influencers or any YouTubers, you often hear them say, Oh, I'm just, I'm just really burned out, man. I've been, I've been working my butt off and I'm running out of ideas or something to that effect. And it's an interesting question. Why do we get burned out? And why is it something that is talked about more now? Maybe that's because we've been focusing as a society on mental health over the last uh, few decades. And that's really risen, made people ask some questions about, well, is it actually healthy for me to feel this way? I would speculate that if you talk to some people from an older, older generations, maybe the silent generation, maybe some of the really early Gen Xers or the boomers, they would say, yeah, I felt burnt out, but I've pushed through it. I worked hard. And that may speak to a mentality that they have that I'm going to sit down, put my nose to the grindstone, and I'm just going to keep on pushing. And I'm going to work through this hard time. And now that we have generations of people that are a little bit more sensitive and that's not necessarily a bad thing. They're more self-aware, or at least they're more willing to admit certain flaws that they have. They're willing to be a little bit more self-analytical. You kind of see this mentioning of burnout happening a lot more. So the real question that comes of this, I mean, that was a nice little discussion. Oh, yeah, why do we see burnout more? But the real question is, how do you mitigate burnout? Not only how do you stop it from happening, But when it does happen, how do you deal with it? And this article by Mr. Bill Murray Jr., I have no idea if he's related to Bill Murray, just so we're clear. That's just uh, the name on the article, and he's a a blog writer, so 
to be honest, I don't think he's related to Bill Murray. I didn't do independent research on this one. And he talks about how he's completely satisfied with his job. He feels like he's earning enough money. He doesn't feel that he's wasting his time doing what he does. So he starts the article off like that, which is important to note that you can still be satisfied. You can love what you do and still get burned out. It doesn't mean that you don't have a passion for what you're doing. It doesn't mean that you are not invested and you want to keep working hard. But he's saying that even with those three things, he still gets burned out every once in a while. And a lot of this pressure comes from the fact that he's running a small business, his newsletter slash uh, blog post, where he sends out information to his subscribers, you know, premium subscribers, and also a little bit of free content on a daily basis. And they were probably pretty long newsletters each time is what he was saying. And his small business that he's operating because of the business model he has, where he has such long content, he has to constantly be working. He has to constantly be checking in on his email, make sure that things are getting across properly, communicating with people that are his subscribers, trying to build his audience out. So his small business isn't at the point where it can survive without him interacting with the community and constantly updating his newsletters. So that puts a lot of pressure on him. And he does mention he takes vacations. He goes out and he's able to have some time with the wife and kids. But as he says here, and I'm going to pull a quote, quote, I was checking my phone 10 times a day to see if what uh, needed to happen on my various work projects actually happened. To paraphrase Ronald Reagan, I wasn't getting a vacation. I was just getting a change of scenery. Come to think of it, checking my phone 10 times a day is a true understatement. I probably don't want to admit the actual number. The point was, I saw warning signs, but I also faced a dilemma. On the one hand, my family and I clearly needed time away, unplugged to the maximum possible extent. On the other hand, I hadn't yet built my business and my work to a point where I could run it could run without me for days or weeks at a time, end quote. And what he brings up here, unplugged to the maximum possible extent, it's a very good point that he brings up, which is it's extremely hard to unplug. You're probably listening to this on a smartphone, maybe a computer, but I would, I would bet that you're probably listening to this on a smartphone. You're using it for YouTube or you're using it for your other podcasts to check your emails. The thing, the phone that you probably have in your pocket, or at least that you own, the smartphone, it is a beautiful piece of technology. It has approved efficiency in the business world. It allows us to have millions of possibilities at our fingertips. We could email somebody in India. We could start a newsletter that we post in a specific region. We can just check our emails. We can FaceTime grandma or we can video message your aunt and uncle who haven't seen the grandbaby, their nieces and nephews in a while. So this beautiful piece of technology is amazing. It offers so many possibilities. But as I was discussing, or my class and I were discussing the other day, our professor brought up that these beautiful pieces of technology have really started to erode the work-life border. 
Because you leave work, but you still have a work phone. You can still check your email. Your boss expects you sometimes to still check your email when it's 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock at night. And, oh, he sent a, a letter to you at 10 when you were in bed. You wake up for half an hour to use the restroom or you can't sleep at 2. And you say, you know what? I'm going to get a jump start on this project that he sent me. So it's ready for my boss the second he comes in. And, you know, that sounds pretty good. You want to take the initiative. You want to be the one to provide value to your boss. But then it's also that discussion of now that that work-life barrier has been eroded, it's also a competition, just like in the workplace. If you're not going to be the one that's willing to be up at 2 a.m. doing that project, having it ready for your boss, there will be somebody else that is willing to do that. And it kind of spurs on this negative feedback loop where everybody's constantly trying to use their free time to outwork their other colleagues and to present themselves as the best worker possible. So you could see why burnout is so common because the work-life balance has eroded. We have a beautiful piece of technology that makes us connected to everything at all times and the competitive nature of business. Mr. Murphy Jr. here, he really wants his newsletter to do well. And like I mentioned earlier, he has to constantly be in contact with his subscribers, or at least that's the thought process he had until he saw a three-letter word pop up on his phone. And you've probably seen this a million times. Low power mode. Yeah, I know, right? He, he says here, and I'll, I'll quote him because I don't want to use his words, but I thought it was really clever the way he put it. Quote, when early this summer, I found the answer to in an unexpected place. While starting at my iPhone after a long day's work, as the battery percentage fell below 20%, the alert flashed on the screen and gave me the option to, quote, turn on low power mode. Many times I had seen this warning appear over the years. How little had I given, thought had I given it? Just swipe the screen, watch the battery icon turn from green to yellow, and move on. But now I laughed. That's what I need in my life, I thought. I don't want to quit what I do. I don't want my output to the world to go dark. I just want to turn on low power mode, end quote. And the way that he implements low power mode here is something that, for the most part, we could all do. It's finding the least path of resistance, finding the minimal amount of work that you can do to still be productive, to still be beneficial to your team, or in this case, as a small business owner, still have the business operate while also giving yourself enough time to relax fully and disconnect from your work or just even disconnect from your phone. Maybe take a hike out in the woods where you leave your phone and you just bring an old iPod so you can still listen to your music or podcast. And the, the way he went about this is he shortened the length of some of his articles and he also started reposting articles so he could have everything planned out two weeks in advance, basically. So it's also making his workflow more efficient. He is putting a little bit more work in on the front end. He's front-loading his work schedule, but then that allows him to have a really easy next two weeks. 
if you think about it, it's probably something that your parents or uh, co-workers said to you or even professors when you were in college or teachers at school. Do a little bit each night. Do a little bit. Do 30 minutes of work on this paper each night, and then you'll have it ready before the due date, and it will probably be better because you're not stressing out. Most recently, I did that for a paper I was writing. I spent 30 minutes each night. I just finished it yesterday, and all I had to do yesterday was proofread it. Normally, I would. it's due tonight. Normally, I would be sitting at this table late at night stressing, and don't get me wrong, it would be a great essay because I love pressure, but it would still bring an undue amount of stress, an undue burden onto me when I could have just done 30 minutes the day before, 30 minutes the day after that. And it just makes life that much easier. So you have to be able to find that balance of putting in minimal effort that's still productive and being able to step back and say, okay, I don't need to do all of this. I don't need to put too much pressure on myself. And I think another great solution that people in our generation are starting to wake up to is the idea that working out can be that time that you are disconnected from your phone. I know personally, I maybe listen to a podcast or I have some sort of music going when I'm working out, but I'm not constantly checking my phone. I'm not going through my emails. I'm not responding to people. In that hour and a half that I'm in the gym, that is my time. I'm locked in. I'm focused. And it gives you a reprieve from the anxieties of the world. And also, it helps release serotonin, which is known to help reduce the amount of anxiety that someone feels. So I think our generation is starting to come up with more healthy mechanisms because we're starting to realize, as a generation that grew up with this phone as an emerging technology and has had it as part of their lives, we're starting to realize, though there are lots of benefits... There are also lots of detriments, and we have to find positive ways to mitigate that. We kind of have to offset this paradox, which is, oh, I need to do this. I need to contact my boss, and that causes me anxiety, or I need to check in at work. That causes me anxiety. But in order to not have that anxiety anymore and take that vacation, you have to make sure everything's okay at work. And that, that's a paradox that causes a feedback loop, and it's hard to get that time away. So you have to make intentional choices. You have to make good choices so that you are able to step back, go into low power mode, and then when you're done with your vacation, you're done from your relaxed time, come back with a new fury and feel ready to take on those new projects. So... We've talked a lot about how you know you have to approach work life and how Mr. Murray dealt with his problems or at least his challenges running a small business. We have another article here from the Daily Caller called Here's a Plan That Will Rescue America's Small Businesses. I know it's a bit of a drastic pivot. I tried to connect it there, but I think this one's really, really important because it brings up uh, questions about how we are going to help our small businesses that are struggling after COVID, as well as how there are possible regulations that can help small businesses and maybe lower inflation as well. So this story comes from Corinna Morga. She's the owner of CR Construction Services, and she speaks first about 
how these supply chain issues have really, really cost her business. Um, obviously, if your supply chains are cluttered up, if it's hard to get products, especially in a construction company, I actually did a construction internship this summer, and these companies are projecting what they're going to need for their projects year, a year, maybe even six months, maybe even a year in advance. So they have to quote the prices of the pro, uh, the things that they're going to need right now. So if a two by four is ten dollars now, they're going to quote the in the contract that oh it's going to cost this much money. We're going to need a hundred two by fours, twenty four dollars per two by four. We're going to need two thousand four hundred dollars for those two by fours. So they're really playing a, a risky game in that. In order to get the contract, they want to give the lowest prices. They have to find suppliers that are willing to give it to them. But they don't know what the prices are going to be in six months. And very often in these contracts, as she mentioned, they are not writing in, oh, if the price goes up, then that's the new price. Because people, when they're signing the contracts, the people that are looking to have this work done, they don't necessarily want an escalation clause in the contract because then the contractor could end up charging them more and that could affect their budget. If they're only budgeting $100,000 for this construction project, then they need that to fall within those lines. So very often, it's the subcontractors of the construction companies that are really absorbing the cost. If it goes up from $24 by two bo- for every 2 by 4 to $26, then they have to absorb that extra $200 that they're going to be Uh, paying for those two by fours and it cuts into their profit margins and it doesn't help that inflation is really hitting everybody hard the baked in price to a lot of small businesses and businesses in general is gasoline because products need to be transported all across the u.s and with higher gasoline prices that raises the cost for everything every almost every single input unless it is locally sourced and you can get it to your warehouse or you can get it to your location very quickly and it doesn't need to be shipped from somewhere, that gasoline cost is baked into everything. It's baked into transportation, even producing some goods. So you can see how this is kind of a a deadly storm for small businesses because they can't necessarily afford to pay those higher gas prices and that higher price for those products because their profit margins are already so thin. And I think what Corinna is proposing here is is smart, or at least it has a through line that is absolutely beautiful and idealistic. And I've discussed what she said with some of my professors and a few friends of mine. And I think that if you just apply a very simple, and I say very simple here because there are lots of functions of economics, but if you apply a very simple economic understanding, it doesn't necessarily have the effect that she wants it to, but I think there are certain aspects of it that are absolutely beautiful. So I'll read a quote here. Um, Quote, in addition to tax certainty, the prosperity plan also provides regulatory certainty by exempting small businesses from new regulations. The provision can protect small businesses like mine from the onslaught of costly labor and environmental rules that further erode our profit margins. 
The plan will also help small businesses become the chronic labor sh- overcome the chronic labor shortage by calling for reinstating worker requirements as a condition of welfare payments. It calls for a market-based healthcare solution such as a price transparency to actually lower the ridiculous costs of American healthcare. It calls on policymakers to expand tax credits through federal policy like fintech and fixed supply chain turmoil causing costly delivery delays for businesses like mine. The prosperity plan has the power to cure what ails small businesses in the American economy. It can turbocharge small business creation and expansion, boosting su- boosting supply to bring down prices. End quote. And all of that is good. And there's actually another part before this where she's talking about keeping the 20% tax deduction that was put in place in 2017 uh, under president donald trump and all of this sounds sounds amazing in theory and especially the 20 percent tax reduction but if you think about it 20 percent tax deduction meaning as she points out companies don't have to spend as much taxes so they can hire more people they can increase wages well if you increase wages if you bring more people out of unemployment and you bring more people into the job force, which is a very noble cause, that means there's more money in the economy. More people are working, therefore they have more spending money. People are making more money, therefore they have more spending money. Meaning that the prices for goods are going to go up because now there's more demand in that economy. They have an extra $20 that they can spend on that McDonald's burger. They have an extra $20 they can spend at Walmart on those food items that they they want that aren't necessarily necessities, but are things like commodities that they would enjoy. And with that extra demand comes more price increases. It actually makes more inflation. So I understand how it will help ease supply side problems, but when it comes to really fixing inflation issues, I don't agree. And I think that's where... It's a little narrow-sighted of her. Where I 100% agree with her is the reduction of regulations on small businesses. If we want small businesses to thrive, we don't want to straddle them with costly uh, approval processes in order to build that new uh, factory near a river. Now, I understand that, of course, we want to ensure that they are not damaging the environment and they're not actually hurting people downstream. But if we want small businesses to grow, we have to limit the amount of regulation that we're willing to put on them. We have to kind of allow the free market to take control and try to get the hand of the government out there and let the quote unquote invisible hand, as Adam Smith always puts it, which I think is a very interesting term, and I don't necessarily love it. That's why I said it in air quotes. But the idea that the less government influence over the economy, the better. I, I can agree with that on a very basic premise when it comes to allowing small businesses to grow and thrive. And we definitely need that in this time when we're going to see a really, a really hard recession here soon. I'm, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to be a pessimist. But it is more than likely that we're going to see a recession because we are raising the interest rates in order to tamp down on inflation. 
So I think the prosperity plan as proposed here, it has some good ideas. It could probably be reined back in on the tax reduction side because we don't want to keep pushing more money into the economy. We don't want to keep this inflation going because then the Fed's just going to have to keep tamping down on those interest rates and keep raising them. So I think we could take some parts of it and it would be great. In other parts, not so much. And speaking of economic news, wow, once again, what an amazing transition for me. I can't believe I'm on a roll today. Um, We have a story from the Daily Wire that is discussing Liz Truss, the new prime minister of Britain. She's trying to take a Thatcher approach to her economy. Actually, I'll read the title here because it actually gives some good insight. New British Prime Minister's agenda draws comparisons to Reaganomics. So Reagan and Thatcher obviously were both in power. I say that. I should probably be more clear. President Ronald Reagan was elected and Thatcher came to be the leader of the cabinet in Britain at the same time in the uh, 80s. And they kind of brought in a really conservative economic policy in both of their countries. They were trying to limit taxation, spur growth. And you can see Liz Truss, who just replaced Boris Johnson. She's a woman who has the opportunity here. She's in a similar position to Thatcher was, even though there are a little bit of differences that we'll get into. She's in a similar position where the economy is not doing amazing. Inflation is absolutely killing the average uh, British citizen. And she has this opportunity to make herself look like the next Margaret Thatcher. And I don't know if it's necessarily a smart political move because Thatcher did fall off at the end of her tenure. But the comparisons are definitely being made. And one of the things she really wants is lower taxes and a higher growth rate. So we can see direct comparison to Thatcher there. She has already promised to slash the basic income tax by 19, sorry, to 19%, which is, is really impressive. Um, I'll, I'll say it could be dangerous because right now the government is subsidizing certain energy plans. They're actually saying, no, no, we are capping the amount of energy that certain British citizens will pay for their electric bill. And they're also trying to increase speculation and drilling in the North Sea. So they're actually spending a lot of money right now. And is it necessarily smart to take away your tax base when you're doing that? I wouldn't necessarily say so. But maybe they're taking the approach that they're hedging on future growth in order to offset the uh, small amount of pain that they're going to go through right now. I have a quote from the article. Quote, She also launched discussions about special economic zones in multiple reasons. Economic growth isn't some academic term with no connection to the real world. It means more jobs, higher pay, and more money to fund public services. So that's a a great concept, and it's a great idea. And this was uh, put out in a press release by her, her office. And I think, in theory, it sounds great. And their way that they want to go about this is become more of a net exporter of natural gas and energy than they are a importer. So they're going to ramp up shale production, which was uh, there was a moratorium on 
under Boris Johnson. They're going to increase drilling in the North Sea. They're going to try to use the natural assets they have, uh, including oil, natural gas, and even some renewable energy sources in order to become not energy independent, but a a net exporter, which in the long run serves a really good purpose of deterring people from using energy, (coughs) Putin, from deterring using energy as a bargaining chip on the world stage. And you can see that this is not only a response to a weakened economy, but also it's a geopolitical strategy to become less reliant on countries that may not be friendly in the future. Like I said, Russia has used its natural gas, uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that they bring natural gas and oil into Europe with. They've used it as a bargaining chip, and they've tried to strangle out the European Union and NATO members for supporting Ukraine. So not only is this, in Liz Truss's mind, a way to secure the British economy, but it's also a way to gain a little bit of geostrategical independence and a leg up so that they don't have to bow to Putin and his energy uh, politics is what I'll call it. We have another quote here that does show the downsides of the policy decisions or at least a possible downsides that they are pursuing. Quote, a piece in the Wall Street Journal remarked that trust is attempting to reshape her political image in the mold of Thatcher whose policies spurred an era of economic growth. The Iron Lady, however, enacted spending cuts before tax cuts to ensure that the government remained funded, meaning that Truss's agenda is more in line with that of Gipper, who increased spending while also decreasing taxes, which is a good point. Uh, We don't want to necessarily compare her straight to Thatcher just because she is taking a bit of a different approach. But I also see in the future her cutting the amount of British involvement. Now, let's be clear, British politics has evolved a lot since Thatcher, and ever since the 70s, the British government has been involved in the life of the people very, very thoroughly. So maybe they won't, but I think once they have this inflation under control, it would be a smart move politically to cut government spending as well. So... I'll leave you with this question. Is Liz Truss the next next Thatcher, or will her lofty ambitions take her to a monumental height from which no one can catch her? If you notice the rhyme there, I worked a solid five minutes on that last night. It's absolutely terrible, but I thought it was cute. All right, and our last story for today, The Daily Delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue Site. Husky Foster's Tiny Kitten. So it's a really cute story. There's a cute video here uh, where you see a husky picking up the kitten by the back of the neck, being really delicate, not hurting the kitten. And the husky's making sure that the kitten's okay, takes it back. They're kind of playing in the backyard together. And I have a quote here. Quote, And we were worried, Adam said in the description. Dogs and cats are often portrayed as natural enemies. But the truth is, they can become fast friends or even family if given the opportunity. Even a large dog like a husky and a tiny kitten can hit it off and learn to love one another, as demonstrated by the video below. And I love the term that they gave the husky here, 
uh, wolf mother. I prefer wolf mama just because I'm from the South. But at the end of the day, it's a cute story. The video is linked uh, in the article. And if you want to read any of the articles today, if you want to see this video, they'll be linked in the description below that like and subscribe button. All right. With that said, only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.